welcome to Brain Train. Uh, last episode we had Camilla. Camilla, would you like to uh, introduce yourself and say why you're here again? Sure. Um, my name's Camilla Sutherland. I'm a researcher in the Department of Spanish and Latin American Studies at UCL. I'm working on a project on women of the Latin American avant-garde. And I'm here because I wanted to learn more about the American healthcare system, basically stemming from having found myself living in D.C. in the midst of the government shutdown. Um, so I'm hoping that I can have this a little bit clarified for me. Um, and so we, we searched far and wide, um, went as far away from UCL as KCL. And um, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Kaitrin Gainty. I'm a lecturer in the history of science, technology and medicine at King's. And my, um, my work is really in uh, the history of American medicine, particularly the first half of the 20th century, and sort of about how the American medical system um, was built up and the kinds of factors that really played a role in um, how it became the medical system that it is today. So do you want to start us off with a, a first question, Camilla? Yeah, sure. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe lay out from the beginning how the US system differs from somewhere like the UK and the national health system. Yes, okay, so um, the one of the, I mean, of course, the main difference is access to care. So in the U.S., and I think there are actually, there are important similarities as well. I mean, in terms of, one of the things that's really important to think about in terms of all of these, um, in terms of healthcare systems in general, is quality. And um, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about as much. But in terms of access, the the U.S. healthcare system until recently with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare um, left, you know, 40 million or so people um, without insurance and therefore without real access to um, uh, medicine um, and regular primary care and um, and in some cases access to emergency treatment. Um, and so the, the idea of having universal health care in the United States is something that's been tossed around for a long time throughout the 20th century. And every time it's happened, there's been, um, you know, massive um, revolt by the American Medical Association and also by unions that were, um, unions were primary um, offerers of um, health insurance for a long time and they were eager to, to keep it privatized so that they would have, you know, sort of this additional hold over um, union members. But the American Medical Association's concern was really um, for a long time that they would lose the power that they had as a, as a lobbying force in the United States. Um, and so this resistance always meant that um, when it actually came down to you know, offering some sort of universal health care, it always would fall flat. And so several times it's come up, it's been proposed, and it's been um, you know, completely unsuccessful. Um, and one of the um, one of the ways that people talk about this, they say there's kind of a division between people who believe that healthcare is a human right and people who believe that healthcare or, or health itself is a commodity. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for a long time, the idea has been that health is actually a commodity, and you should pay for your care. And so, insurance, the health insurance systems in the United States really operate along those lines. You pay into them. Um, and then when you you know need medical care, you have access to it, and you generally you also probably pay a little bit depending on what kind of plan you have. The um, health insurance 
um, uh, companies have very different packages that they offer. And so the most likely thing is that if you're sort of, um, you know, an average person working at sort of a large-ish company, you will have health insurance through your company. If you are someone who owns a small business or works for a small business, you probably won't because it would be prohibitively expensive to buy it and provide it for your employees. Um, and uh, for a long time it was the case that really it was sort of you pay for services as, as they go along. Um, but in the, in the 60s there was this um, expansion of, or actually just this idea that um, the federal government needed to offer some sort of health insurance options to those who were very poor and those who were over 65. So those two programs are Medicaid and Medicare. Um, and so you have to earn, I think, what's now under $40,000 a year in order to qualify to be poor enough to be able to get Medicaid. And is that completely free healthcare provision? Is there any kind of semblance of what we have in the UK of, I mean, really just turning up at a doctor's surgery or at a hospital and receiving care for for no payment? There, I mean, that can happen, but more often the case is, well, so for Medicaid, it's it's... It's difficult because only so hospitals can determine what proportion of patients they take will be Medicaid patients mm-hmm. because Medicaid doesn't reimburse for most things doesn't reimburse um, as well as private insurance companies do so it's not in their interest they don't make money off of Medicaid patients and so they usually put a limit on the number that they'll take so that if you're a Medicaid patient and you go to the hospital um, for kind of routine care or something like that you will get that and you won't pay for it. There may be some sort of minimum payment, um, but for the most part, you won't pay for it. Um, But if you have Medicare, then you probably will pay something on top of what you're offered for free. And also in the case of Medicare, you don't get... um, you don't get just access to care. You you have there's you know caps on the number of patients yeah. that will be seen in a particular place. So the the so these are sort of these measures have been useful, but they haven't solved the problem. And then on top of that, they in the um, in the eighties um, they adopted the emergency. Um, it's called MTALA. I think it's mm-hmm. Emergency Medical Active Labor Act, something yeah. like that. Um, and which said that you, because there was a large practice of emergency rooms dumping patients to other emergency rooms, and so um, patients, you, it just made that illegal. So yeah. if you went into an emergency room, you would get um, care, yeah, whatever, as long as you were, in, as long as it was an emergency. So as a result, a lot of people got their primary care from emergency rooms. Okay. It didn't mean that it was free. It just meant that they were they were able to get care to be treated. There. Yeah. yeah, and then you know it would it, you know there's you hear stories all the time of people who um, had astronomical bills from an emergency room but just didn't pay them or just yeah. avoided them. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it's not operating on the logic that it's not in a hospital's interest to pursue you for, you know, what's a tiny fraction of the amount of money that they deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. And is Medicare a government-subsidized program? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but both of these, so both of these programs, Medicaid and Medicare, are, are federal programs, but they are left to the states to decide how they will be um, meted out. And so different states have different rules about who's covered, how you qualify for Medicaid. In some states, you qualify if you're pregnant. Um, and, and most, maybe every state, in most states, if you're under a certain age, you will qualify for health care, whether or not, if, you're, if your family qualifies for health care, um, so that children are always covered. That's sort yeah. of the idea. Yeah. And in terms of foreign nationals and immigrants presumably this also no coverage yeah. yeah there's yeah there's absolutely nothing. no provision for that right mm. 
Yeah. Um, and I think the thing that, um, and so the Affordable Care Act has extended some of these programs so that people who wouldn't have had access before now will have some sort of access. Um, and, and it's a funny sort of segment of the population because it's people who aren't poor enough or old enough to qualify for these other yeah. things, but are not wealthy enough to be able to buy their own health insurance policies. So um, health insurance companies have, um, you know, over time adopted this, um, you know, a set of plans for people who were, um, didn't have very much money, didn't want to spend a lot on health care. And so those people could buy, you know, something that just covered if they had a, an emergency or something like yeah. that, but wouldn't cover any other kind of routine care. But it's an interesting thing, I mean, because very much unlike our experience here, I mean, we, you know, we got here and immediately walked into a place and, you know, got health care, yeah. you know, and, and for free. And yeah. it was, it still is completely shocking to yeah. us, you know, that that can happen. Um, but, you know, because we're so used to not only going, you know, we've had insurance, so we go in, we get some sort of care, and then we also get a bill for the things that yeah. weren't covered by the insurance policy that we have. I think, yes, speaking yeah, as, someone, as a British woman, that seems so counterintuitive to someone who's grown up in, in a system which has, uh, you know, a national health service and that idea. I mean, so growing up, I mean, if I were a 20-something graduate student, I mean, what type of situation would I be facing? Universities offer... Um, healthcare to their graduate students, but not to undergraduate students. So okay. that graduate students get a plan, but then uh, you know a, an amount of money is taken out monthly or quarterly or something like that. And um, many universities have their own clinics where people go to get their healthcare. And you know there's this very complex arrangement about where you can be um, referred from that you know from that clinic. And so you can you can see certain doctors but not other doctors. Yeah. And it's a um, and it's also it's a problem because you if you have if you see a you know sort of a, a not very helpful practitioner in the clinic you can't really then go off and see somebody else you know there's just a, that's it and if they say you're fine then you're fine mm -hmm. and so i think there's been this rhetoric that's built up as a result of that that's about patients rights and so that when you go in somewhere to get health care you have to demand everything mm -hmm. and so you know if someone says you don't need a referral if you badger them enough they will give you a referral mm -hmm. and so there's this kind of sense that um you know, you have you have to take control of your of your health care, of your health, and you have to demand things whether or not they're really things that you want or need. I mean, you know, you're not really in a position to know, but but if you know, when in doubt, just you know, ask for everything. And I think that's the mentality that a lot of people have. I think, yeah. but one thing that's sort of interesting about the system is that there's you know there are all of these little um, things that have sort of grown up around it to. Um, take care of people who can't afford care. So, I mean, there are free clinics in, mm. in you know, probably usually four or five in each city, depending on the size. Some places, you know, much larger uh, or much more. Um, and then there are also, you know, you have a lot of choices when it comes to things like obstetrics and things like that, mm. so that you could go to a private midwife, um, you know, group or something mm. like that. And, 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 pay less for their services or you could go to a hospital and you know without insurance pay you know to have the the kind of the standard care that um 
that other people would have in the hospital. But I think, and you know, it's it's also interesting that because you're paying for this all the time, you um, you know you make choices based on that, and there isn't any kind of standard. You know, you must do X, Y, and Z. It's it's not routinized in the same way that many things are here. You um, you can opt out of things, and people will allow you to opt out of things. Mm -hmm. You know, really easily because all you have to say is, you know, I can't pay for that, and so <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And that's perfectly acceptable. It's, so sorry. it's sometimes said that American uh, patients have a little bit more kind of power in a particular way that you can have consumer power, and that people who aren't consumers have different forms of power. But there's like you choose between medicine, and you can hold your doctors to account over more easily. Um, do you think that's true, or a sort of culture of understanding medicine is that bigger, or do we do we, do we devolve the responsibility in the UK too much to professionals? Um, I mean, I think that it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think there is, there's at least this rhetoric that if you, you are a consumer of healthcare and so you have to make good decisions about how you're, you know, what you're going to do and what you're going to get out of it. And so at least the idea is, and this is sort of, you know, where this whole kind of framework of bioethics comes mm -hmm. in, that, um, you know, you have rights and you need to do something to, you know, you, you enact those rights, you know, and... Um, and that if you don't do that, you're going to get sort of whatever the doctor wants, and, and the doctor probably wants something that's not really that helpful to you. So there is that sort of feel to it, but I think when it probably, when it really comes down to it, I think people probably um, go along with what their doctor says that they should do mm. most of the time. And I think with the exception of particular populations of people who have very difficult relationships with sort of the healthcare system more generally. So in Chicago, um, for example, and actually in many, many cities, I think um, the African-American population is, is by far, when you go to these bioethics um, conferences, these case mm -hmm. conferences where they talk about particular problems that have happened in the hospital, it's often, you know, um, a black woman who's demanding this, that, and the other just based on the fact that you know it's a it's a there's been so there's such a tense relationship between the African American community and this kind of you know healthcare system more generally because they've been you know there's classic bioethical horriblenesses where um, they've done studies of syphilis untreated syphilis mm -hmm. you know that kind uh -huh. of thing um, and so it's this kind of classic tense relationship and so. Um, whether or not this is actually true, but in the case conferences, it always comes up that people say, yes, well, so this, I had this African-American patient who demanded this and this and this, and it was really inappropriate, but, you know, I, what could I do? I had to sort of go along with it, mm -hmm. and now, you know, and then the question is, well, how, what do I do because this person is demanding inappropriate care, and am I required to give it to them? But, and, and so all of that is really problematic and I mean my own healthcare experiences in the US have been generally quite nice but you know I'm a middle-class white person and I think mm -hmm. that really has great advantages I mean in in the sense that I have insurance or I've you know had insurance and um, and when I go in and have conversations with my doctor we have a reasonable conversation and we talk about what the options are or what the problems are or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, I think there are very, very different experiences of healthcare depending on who you are in the United States. The, the really interesting thing to me about um, 
our my experience so far of the NHS mm-hmm. is that um, I came here six months pregnant, mm-hmm. and so I had prenatal care in the United States and then prenatal care <laughs> here. Do a direct comparison. Yes, and it was a it was a it was a crazy experience. In mm-hmm. the in the U.S., I'd opted not to have. Um, scans because mm-hmm. they were not covered by the insurance that I had yeah. and so I and also it was it's one of those things actually where there's a lot of you know sort of you don't need to do it this is a choice you should be mm-hmm. making a choice about this and so I thought okay I'll make a choice not to have these scans that's fine and it saves yeah. you know like eight hundred dollars yeah. or something and so that's worth it but then when I got here because I hadn't had these scans I was considered a late booker and I soon realized I, that's the absolute worst thing to be. Every time they looked at my father, they were like, oh, a late booker. Oh, God, this is really bad. And so they ended up doing, they insisted that I have two scans because they said every pregnant pregnant woman should have two scans during the pregnancy. And they did the scans in the last month of pregnancy, two weeks apart, and then had this sort of, you know, we're like, well, we didn't see any growth. In over the two weeks, and I thought, really, it's the it's the last month. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you looking for here? This is just too much. And so, um, but I think, it, but what was really interesting is that at least the hospital and the and the midwife that um, where I had the baby and where I had the prenatal care, at least for them, there was a real. Um, there was, there was real significance placed on just offering the routine, you know, mm-hmm. doing the routine, whether or not it made any sense, just doing the routine and making sure that was done before I had the baby. And granted, I mean, that was a very particular hospital and a very particular experience, and I don't think that it's probably generalizable, mm-hmm. but it did make me, you know, it was sort of remarkable considering that, you know, I'd gone from opting out of scans and saying, you know, I trust the baby will be fine and I feel fine and that's yeah. fine to you have to have these scans even though they are essentially meaningless at this point in the pregnancy but you are going to have them so it was a really funny you know a really funny um, set of circumstances um, yeah on on both sides I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why the Affordable Care Act has been so controversial my sense and this is completely you know based on I don't know what little I know about insurance and Mm. and not probably too much else, but my sense is that it really comes down to this question, this kind of eternal question for American medicine and for Americans more generally about whether you are um, self-determining and, Mm. you know, sort of for, um, you know, an individual out out for yourself who will pay for the things that you need or, or whether you are somebody who, you know, is willing to be protected by, uh, you know, the the government, whether you and whether you should be subject to to what the government tells you to do. And so there are lots of um, lots of conversations about, you know, do we want a nanny state, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. To which Obama and others replied, well, we already have a nanny state in in many ways that are, you know, we sort of accept as being completely fine and useful, you know, in terms of public health laws and things like that. That that we actually find. Um, you know, to conducive to, you know, having a, a healthy, safe population or whatever, and, and nobody um, really has a problem with it. But so it's it's very much about a kind of rhetoric more than it's really about, um, you know, in this case about, um, uh, uh, but a longstanding rhetoric about um, 
how we are supposed to be as individuals, mm-hmm. as citizens of the United States. And that's something that, you know, I mean, you could say, like, that's what the whole history of the United States has been about. Do you want yeah. small government? Do you want big government? Do you want states' rights? Do you want a strong, powerful federal government? Do you want to be fractured and everybody does their own thing? Or do you want to be, you know, citizens who all come together in a particular way? And I think that, you know, I, you know, my hope is that affordable, the Affordable Care Act is going to kind of help to cement things a little bit or just, you know, sort of... Um, offer some sort of logic to health care in the United States that's currently completely absent, but it could also be that it just adds another layer of illogic to it, that it just is, you know, it's a cumbersome, top-heavy, crazy system, you know, piecemeal and, you know, has kind of evolved over time, and um, that this could just be one more layer to that. Yeah, because, I mean, again, coming from the point of view of not knowing much about uh that uh, Obamacare, because um, it, it is. I mean, when we talk about when you talk about universal health care in the U.S., <laughs> um, it's quite different to what we would understand as universal health care here, because we're still talking about a system of insurance mm-hmm. here. And so, it's as I understand, it's more about making insurance universally, more universally accessible, rather than providing. A well, sense of free healthcare. Free I mean, all yeah. moving towards a system of, right, of, right, right. of free healthcare. Right, exactly. That's okay. exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So universal health, so that people have, I mean, so that people have affordable options for buying healthcare. Uh, healthcare so universal health access to buying. Yes. Okay. But not that they necessarily. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks that you know they're going to offer healthcare for free. I, yeah. I think that's not not on the table. And you would never envisage that. I mean, from a personal perspective, or from your knowledge of the history of, of how, I don't how think so. your I don't, system is. I don't think emerged. so. And I think it's actually. I mean, it's. I think this also leads to this interesting problem of quality. Mm-hmm. And I think this quality, however you get access to care, the question about the quality of that care is. It's a you know more global question. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's very variable. And how you define what what quality is in terms of healthcare? Is it that everybody gets it, and so mm-hmm. therefore you know that's there's sort of some sort of idea that that's quality, or is it that you get the best care that's available, and how do you you know standardize those things, or how do you yeah. measure those things? And so I think, um, yeah, I mean, while I don't think that there's ever going, I I really can't see how how that how yeah. would ever happen that there would be um, you know free healthcare funded. Um, you know, or that wouldn't involve insurance. Mm. Um, I think it does offer. I think it's you know it's a it's it's important to kind of recognize that, but then it's also important to kind of move beyond it and try to think about issues about quality and about um, you know. I mean, I think, and that's true even here. You know, some hospitals Definitely. are better than others. Yeah. You know, and so that you can have very different experiences of of healthcare depending on where you end oh, up. Of course, and it and it doesn't mean that in the UK class or other aspects don't come into it. It isn't right, that, you right. know, that everybody, as you say, kind of has access to this wonderful standard of care. Which would be, and, it would know, be great. Yes, yeah. it's, de- it's deeply entangled in the UK as well. But, yeah. Um, well, it's relatively new here. Uh, it's only the last 60, 70 yes. years. And there was a huge amount of educa- educational programmes that went in to explain how the NHS yeah. would work. Although that was introducing whole new bodies of people to healthcare who hadn't previously been able to ex- yeah. experience it. So maybe right. that's different. Um, well, we always ask our guests um, to reflect upon what they feel are still questions in their field or in their work that um, you haven't really talked so much about your own work. Um, 
but maybe there's a question you still want to share with us that you feel is something that needs to be addressed by your field or you have a question more pertinent to the topic we've been talking about what, anyway to our, what, what's your, your question that you'd end with that you haven't got an answer to <laughs> well um so i recently i've been thinking as uh, about the idea that we have very particular ways of narrating the history of medicine that involve very particular features and very particular characteristics and that it's made me really wonder what would happen if you expanded beyond those things so what if you considered you know the the um you know the travelogues that 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 um that medical practitioners, medical practitioners loved to travel mm -hmm. and kept massive scrapbooks of their travels. Mm -hmm. So, what if you started to consider those and and thought about, you know, who are these people who are interested in traveling and also for some reason interested in medicine? Is it just mm -hmm. that they're wealthy enough to travel? Or, so I so I sort of had this idea for a history of things that seem irrelevant to medicine mm -hmm. that sort of you know are on the margins and trying to figure out if they if you told the story of of medicine's history that way what would you end up with mm -hmm. would it just be sort of an attack on you know the the idea that we think we know what's relevant or would it be would it lead to a whole new way of thinking about what the history of medicine is about i don't know but <laughs> it's very exciting to me to think about that so yeah, i thought i would nice, share that's a nice idea thank you thank you both wonderful thank Thanks. you